So we are almost done. I think we have two weeks left after this week with the sermon series we've been doing on the image of God. And we've been looking at what it means to be made in the image of God and the impact of the fall on the image of God. In other words, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. But we've also been looking at some of the things that are intertwined with being an image bearer in the first couple chapters of Genesis. So we looked at the idea of how it says male and female, he created them. It says that he created them to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion. Um, and today we're going to be talking about how he, it says that he placed man in the garden to work it and to keep it. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And this, this message really deals with two issues that you may find from time to time in your heart, Okay. The first issue that you're going to see it deals with is this sense in which you feel like your life is somehow less important because you are not fill in the blank, Mother Teresa, okay? And you think, well, if that were my life, I would actually have meaning, but instead, I guess my job is just to like cheer for the Mother Teresas of the world, and I'm glad that some people are actually doing something that's important. How many people have felt like that? Come on, don't be liars. The second thing we're talking about is lying. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we all feel like that sometimes. I have news for you. Everybody feels like that. Even the people in the world who are doing remarkable things, they feel like that as well. And so we're going to be dealing specifically with that. The second thing we're going to be dealing with is the diversity within how God has wired us. This is something we struggle with too. And you can tell you struggle with it because of two things that I know are in your life, because your spouse told me. The first thing is this, envy of other people, how you wish you were more like that, you know? I wish I could, whatever it might be, I wish that I could, I could, I could go, I could run fast like that person. I wish I could eat as many donuts as Jason and not gain a pound. That would be a great thing, right? I wish I could, and you start comparing yourself to other people. So you know the envy in your heart, the envy in your heart, it basically covets what other people have, whatever God has given them. But then at the same time, um, the opposite of that is that then we look at the way we are wired and the way that comes naturally to us, and we say, the world would really be a better place if people were more like me. And so we have thoughts like, I like to pray. How come they don't like to pray? Or we have thoughts like, I value these things. How come they don't value these things? I love to share my faith. Obviously, they're a bunch of sinners because they don't share their faith. And so we start propping ourselves up as this standard where it's like, I am the cookie cutter, and everybody should look like me, act like me, think like me, talk like me, and so on and so forth. So those things are really going to come out in today's topic of work the garden. Kind of surprising. You see, God created mankind in his image, and then he placed them, Adam and Eve, he placed in a garden sanctuary. And this called Eden, we call it Eden. This garden of Eden, by the way, Eden means delight. So this garden of delight, this garden sanctuary, it's filled with all manner of trees and animals and fruits and vegetables. And most importantly, we learn in the first few chapters of Genesis that God walked in the garden that God lived in the garden. He visited it. He talked with mankind. He would come for walks in the cool of the afternoon. And essentially, the Garden of Eden is a divine place where heaven and earth collide. 
It's where the heavenlies and the earth, right? So the heavenlies and the spiritual framework of the scriptures, the heavenlies are like the spiritual places. It doesn't necessarily always mean sky, right? The spiritual places and the earth being the earth, the earthly places. And the Garden of Eden is where those two things overlap. It's a divine place. It's a holy place. And it says that God placed man in the garden in Genesis 2.15 to do two things, to work it and to keep it. That's what was, that was man's job. And so we talked last week about having dominion, how God talks about how mankind are little kings. And then we see here that the, the primary function of their having dominion is working and keeping within this garden sanctuary. And so essentially, they're tilling the soil, they're caring for the plants and animals, and as they do these things, they are serving God. Matter of fact, this phrase, work and keep, is a crucial phrase to understand because it's the same phrase, those two words, to work it and keep it, that's used to describe later when the Levites would work in the tabernacle. That's what they were tasked to do. They were tasked to work and keep the tabernacle, to care for it, to guard it, to exercise their duties. If you don't know what the tabernacle is, it's basically where God was worshipped. It's where God, quote, lived. It was a shadow of his dwelling place where they did where they did sacrifices, rather, and these sorts of things. Now, all of this points to one big idea, and the big idea is this, that in the beginning... God created mankind to be priests, priests serving God. That was part of their design. All right, so last week we talked about how God created mankind to be kings, a kingship, but we also realize in this phrase to work it, to keep it, to go in the garden, this garden sanctuary, that God's design was that there would be a priesthood of all humans, that all humanity would function as priests the same way that all humanity was supposed to function as kings as well, that they would be a kingdom under God and they would be priests to serve their God. And from your perspective, what you need to realize is this. That means there was no secular and sacred divide, all right? If we want to, if we on a very, on a very cursory level, if we want to think about like the kingship almost as like the secular and the priest as the sacred, these were kings and priests. There was no sacred, secular divide. All was one and all was well in the world until it wasn't, right? Because we saw every week we've talked about this, that the consequence of Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when they decided that they were going to try to learn good and evil from experience instead of learning about it from their creator, from that point in time, sin entered the world, and part of the consequence of sin was separation. Separation between God and man. Separation between man and man. Separation between man and animals, right? And there was even separation within who we are and who God created us to be. Exiled from the garden, denied access to the garden sanctuary, which meant denied access to God's presence. Now the way to God's presence was guarded by an angelic flaming sword, and the only way to draw near was through the shedding of sacrificial blood. This is why in the Old Testament law, after God redeems his people from Egypt with the parting of the Red Sea and the Ten Commandments, in the Old Testament law, God establishes a new group of priests. 
people who would mediate between God and man. And this new group of priests called the tribe of Levi or the Levites, it says that God redeemed them. In other words, he purchased them. He ransomed them as a, kind of like a tie, almost like the firstborn. He purchased them and he set them aside as his priests, that he would be their portion instead of them getting a portion in the land. And so whereas the priesthood was extended to all humanity prior to the fall, now the priesthood is segmented to this one tribe called the Levites. But instead of them going to the garden and slapping the flaming sword high five on the way in, they would have to settle for a shadow of his sanctuary in the tabernacle. And this is why the author of Hebrews says that the tabernacle was just a shadow. It was a shadow and the substance, the reality that's in the heavenlies, the substance which is really seen ultimately in Christ. The shadow is in the tabernacle, and that's where the Levites would serve. They couldn't even function in the substance. They had to function within the shadow. And so the priests within that tabernacle, their responsibility was to work it and keep it. That was what they had to do. They had to make sure there was fresh bread. They had to make sure the lamps were lit. They had to make sure that the incense was burning. They had to make sure that the unclean were kept out. They had to make sure that the people were educated in the things of the law. And this was their responsibility. And of course, they had to make sacrifices. If there was anything that you would see when you went into the tabernacle or later what became the temple is you would see a lot of blood. Blood everywhere because sacrifices were constantly happening. Constantly, like we talked about in Leviticus, that if you have the encroaching uncleanliness of sin, the defilement of sin is just constantly kind of creeping like a shadow falling onto the tabernacle. What they had to do was take the blood and they had to basically, not really, but they had to kind of wipe all of that uncleanliness away, like a giant bloody Clorox wipe, because wherever the blood was, there was temporary covering so that they could draw near to God. That's what the priests had to do. But as the author of Hebrews informs us, and as the Old Testament people knew in practice, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away my sin or your sin or the sin of a nation, let alone the sin of the world. And the blood of a bull certainly couldn't bring reconciliation to the epic catastrophic separation that had happened between God and man, man and man, man and self that blood wouldn't just take those things away if you killed a sheep. The days of the priesthood of all people, like we talked about in the Garden of Eden, those days were long gone. And now the priesthood reside, that kind of priesthood, that priesthood of all people resided only in promises and memory and prophecy and dream. But in Christ, this all changed. In Christ, this all changed. Are you guys following me so far? Okay. In Christ, this all changed because Jesus came as a prophet, he came as a king, and he came as a priest. He came as a prophet like Moses to lead his people as the mouthpiece of God on a greater exodus, not out of physical Egypt, but out of spiritual Egypt. He came as this prophetic figure who would lead this exodus out of sin and death. He came as a king, 
fulfilling all of the promises given to King David, who wrote so many of our Psalms, because David was promised a dynasty. God promised David that David would always have someone who would sit on his throne, and one day he would have a, an ancestor who would sit on the throne forever, and the, the throne of the Ancient of Days, like we see in Daniel chapter 7. But he also came as a priest. Now, Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of Judah, just like David. But he came as a priest of a pre-Israelite order. He came as a priest in the order of the, the author of Hebrews argues, the order of Melchizedek, which the, the name Melchizedek is two words pushed together in Hebrew. It's the word king and righteousness. And so Jesus came as a high priest in the order of the king of righteousness, the king of Salem. That's what he's called in the book of Genesis, which is why many people think that Melchizedek actually was a pre-incarnate um, Christ. So, but what did Jesus accomplish? That's what I want to push on today. What did Jesus accomplish as prophet, priest, and king? And what we see is in Revelation 5, a very succinct summary. Revelation 5, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Um, the Lamb of God is being worshipped in the heavenly places in this divine theater that John is, being, is able to see as he's on the island of Patmos. He's seeing this incredible revelation, the final revelation of Jesus. And this is what John sees. He says, they sang a new song, not a song from the 90s like we did today. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open, open its seals. Let me just pause you. You know, a lot of scholars will say they think this refers to the scroll in Daniel, the scroll in Daniel that was sealed and it wasn't allowed to be opened. And no one could open it, okay? But the lamb could open it. You, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain because you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people. That's that prophetic role of Moses. You ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation or ethne, um, ethnicity. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And so what we see right there is that those three roles, prophet, priest, king, ransomed and then because of his blood that was poured out as the sacrifice, he purchases them, he ransoms them out, he redeems them so that they can be a kingdom and priests. That this high priest, this king, was executed on a cross, although he was innocent, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that our sin debt could be wiped clean. But with his blood, he purchased people for God, just as the prophet Moses had watched God purchase the Levites so many years before when he established a priesthood. But now Jesus establishes a priesthood, but it's not just a priesthood of a tribe, it's a priesthood of everyone who has been purchased. So the end result of Jesus' sacrifice is so much greater than the end result of the Exodus ransom because he purchases people from every tribe, not just the Levites, but from every tribe. And he purchases people from every nation, not just the Israelites, but every nation, every ethnicity under, uh, under the heavens and on the earth. And he says this is why. One, to be a kingdom. This is what we talked about last week blessed to have dominion. Two, to be a priest. In other words, working and keeping that garden sanctuary. Three, to reign. 
as co-heirs with Christ. Now, I hope that by now this sounds familiar to you guys. Are you beginning to see the big meta-narrative threads that go from Genesis to Revelation? I hope that you are, because this is what's beautiful about the Bible, that we have Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. He wants to rescue them to be a kingdom, to have dominion. He wants them to, he rescues them to be priests so that they can work and keep the sanctuary. See, Jesus' work is amazing, and the result is that in Christ, if you've been zoning out, in Christ you were purchased with his blood for a remarkable purpose, priesthood, and to be a king. So do you want to know what your purpose in life is? Do you want to know what your calling is? This is your calling. This is your purpose, to be a priest and a king. No secular sacred divide. You're a king and a priest. Some of us know all of us, whether you're a believer who's been a believer for one month or whether you've been a believer for 40 years, you are a king and a priest in Christ. That's God's original design, pre-fall, and it's been restored in shadow, and it will be restored in substance. We call that theologically already, not yet. Okay, so we are experiencing a taste of it now, as if God has signed the, you know, the, the, the title and he owns the house, but we haven't moved in. You know, that kind of idea. And we're beneficiaries of the title that Jesus holds. This is God's original design. So what do you do now? You're a kingdom, you're a priest, great, let's go home, eat some donuts on the way. What do we do with that reality? Okay, so I really pushed through that biblical foundation because I think this is where people really struggle. I could have just said to you, you're a king and a priest, okay, see ya. But what do we do with it? Because this is the truth, and I'm going to ruffle some feathers. You are living in a culture that has a 100% tarnished, unhealthy view of what is called the theology of vocation. Okay? We naturally separate the secular and the sacred, and then we think only certain people can perform certain spiritual duties. But is this right? What does the Bible actually teach about vocation? And why on earth am I saying the word vocation in the first place? Because I don't remember the Bible actually ever saying vocation. So why am I talking about vocation? Well, vocation is actually the Latin word for calling or assignment. Vocation is the Latin word for calling and assignment. And you see the word calling or called, how God called us, God assigned us. You see those words all the time in the scriptures, and that is what the Latin vocation actually means, that God calls us to faith, that God calls us to spiritual life, that God calls us by name, that God calls us to areas of service, that God assigns to us, Acts 17 says he assigns where we're going to live, what country we're going to be born in, that these are aspects of vocation according to the scriptures, things that, that are involved in who we are, or as I am term, and am coining the term, so if you want to like copyright it or trademark it or whatever you do, it's vocational footprint, your vocational footprint, okay? Your vocational footprint has been assigned to you, and you've been called to it in Christ. Paul explains it this way, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. That's vocation. That God has assigned a life to you that you would walk in it, and it's different from my life. 
and it's different from the person next to you and the person in front of you and the person behind you. All you have to do is live the life that God has assigned to you and that which he has called you to, realizing that part of that calling in Christ is to be a king and a priest and to reign, okay? Ephesians 2.10, which uh, my dad read before the service, says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's another way of saying that we are the product of God's hands. We are created in Christ Jesus for a vocational calling, and he has created your specific vocational footprint as a kingdom and as a priest, as a male or as a female, as someone who's going to settle down in New Jersey or Alaska, as someone who is really good at art or really good at bowling, okay, whatever your vocational footprint is, he has crafted it in advance that you would walk out the good works that God has in advance for you. And so the question is, well, how do I figure out? How do I figure it out? How do I know what to do? Well, our vocational calling, our vocational footprint is made up of three areas, and this is what the reformers would talk about. Three areas of vocational calling, the household, the church, and the state. Those were the three areas of vocational calling, and I'm going to explain these, and then I want to tell you why our culture has messed us up so much, okay? When they talked about the household, they're referring to the Greek words for household, um, or the Greek words for economy, rather, which is, comes from the words house and management. It's oikos and nomia. Oikonomia, okay, is the word for economy, but that's what is meant by household. And so your household is your family, your job, your personality. It's everything about you in the everyday stuff of life. It's your marriage. It's your parenting. It's being a son or a daughter. Even your gender is assigned to you. These are vocational callings and assignments that God has given as part of your economia, all right, as your household. This is the most important, the most kind of the realest vocation to your life, caring for your family, caring for yourself. This is who you are at the core. The second vocational part, second part of the vocational footprint is the church, that all Christians aren't just assigned a, you know, the way they look and, and their family and their kids, and all those kinds of things, that Christians are also called and assigned by name. The Bible says that God called us by name, called and assigned by name in the gospel to be appointed and adopted into God's family and to receive every spiritual blessing in the church. The church is the family of God. So within the church, um, if, you're, if you're a born-again follower of Christ, that's another aspect of your vocational footprint that you're called Please don't zone out on me. I know that you're saying this is so not what I was expecting. Trust me, I'm telling you, if you can bear with me, you're going to be shocked at how ruined you are. Okay? All right? There, now I wet your whistle a little bit. Within the church, we're called to the church in Christ, but within the church, God also calls different people with oikonomia callings to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be a deacon within the church, within the church footprint. 
And beyond that, as people who are called to and assigned to the church family, to this, this family, this covenantal family that we have in this small little town, in this small little state, in this great big world, okay, um, we are responsible to be obedient within the framework of our vocational calling here to love one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to build one another up, to exercise the spiritual gifts that God has, has, has given to us, assigned to us. Are you beginning to see the way that this vocational footprint kind of plays out in the divine providence of God? He is the potter. You are the clay. He has molded you a particular way. I just made a rhyme. It's one of my vocational callings, guys. And the third aspect of your vocational footprint is the state. We live in Cape May County. We live in New Jersey. We live in the United States. We're Americans. Eagle, right? We are within our congregation. We will find various cultures where people were born, maybe in different parts of the world. Um, maybe you find yourself living in a different place. This, too, is part of our vocation, our calling, our assignment. That means that Christians can and should function within the state, bettering our communities as salt and light. Because we're not divorced from these different sections, you know, of household and church and state. We are embedded within them as part of our vocational footprint. All right. Any questions on that? So, yeah, start from the top. I know. This is like... So the question is this, do you actually view those things as your calling? Probably not. Probably not. You probably don't. Or maybe you just view parts of them as your calling. Instead, I'll tell you the truth, most often we view them begrudgingly as responsibilities and burdens. So too many parents view their children as a, as, a, as a burden. They view their job as a hassle. Too many children forget that being a child is a vocational assignment. Assignment, as evidenced by the song, this new job's a hassle and the kids got the flu, but it was sure nice talking to you, Dad. It was sure nice talking to you. Instead of enjoying the vocational footprint that we have been given and assigned, we actually resent it, and it's hard for us to be faithful within it. The other evidence of that's in the household, in the oikonomia, in the household that we have, in that economy, and in the church, we struggle with this too because people think that ministry is the pastor's job and they think evangelism is for the missionary or the parachurch organization. Often Christians in the state, they don't want to be involved in the state because they view being involved in the state as somehow less, somehow secular, somehow beneath them, and we should be raising above the fray and ignoring it in some kind of laissez-faire, ignorant, well, whatever. I have greater things on my mind, the kingdom of God. And so when we say those things and we think those ways, you know what we're doing? We're drawing a distinction between secular and sacred. But no, 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 we are a kingdom and priests, all of us. There is no secular, sacred divide anymore. You see, we have a twisted view of vocation, calling, and assignment. All right? You ready? These false beliefs exist because of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? These false beliefs exist because we have a, a, a secular sacred divide, which is not part of the scriptures, which is not in the Bible. It's actually a false teaching within the Roman Catholic Church, which was one of the teachings that led to the Reformation, and maybe you've heard this term, the priesthood of all believers. Okay, so let me tell you what the Roman Catholic Church has historically taught. Historically, the Roman Catholic Church has taught that only the sacred is a vocational calling, 
And if you want to have meaning and purpose, you need to abandon the secular and pursue the what? The sacred, the clergy. Historically, this has created a tiered system of value where the Roman Catholic clergy have left the secular world and they've entered into the spiritual world. And the result is that many people falsely believe they cannot find purpose and meaning in life because the vocational footprint that they've been assigned to is somehow less. Did you follow what I just said? I'll prove it to you. How many of you think that, oh, At least Christian and Elena are doing something of value with their lives. Admit it. You've thought it. All I am is a fill-in-the-blank. We tend to think that those who are pastors, missionaries, church planners, those who are starting, you know, uh, orphanages in Africa, we think they somehow have more purpose and more calling and more meaning, and God must take more pleasure in them because the sacred is more important than the secular. That's what we believe, isn't it? But we don't believe it because it's in the scriptures. We believe it because it's hardwired into our culture because we can't divorce ourselves from our past. We've been corrupted by the Roman Catholic Church's teaching. The Roman Catholic Church, even if you weren't raised Catholic, you've been corrupted by it. The Roman Catholic Church historically has taught that to pursue the spiritual, to please God, to serve him well, to honor him, you must exchange the secular for the sacred. Follow me. You must abandon family for celibacy. You must abandon work and success for poverty within the clergy of the Catholic Church, and you must abandon functioning within the state and instead obeying the real power, which is the Pope. Historically, the Catholic Church has taught that people who do those things are the real priests, but everyone else, you're just normal people. Matter of fact, you can't even read the Word of God because you're somehow lesser. Now, you might say, that's not how my Catholic friends, well, your Catholic friends didn't write the catechism, okay? This is what the Catholic Church teaches I'm not picking on your friend. I'm saying historically, this is the teaching of the Catholic Church. And it was a big deal in the Reformation as they wrote about the theology of vocation, the theology of work, and how God's people as priests, the everyday priesthood of the believer, how they were supposed to function in the world. See, the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago rejected all of these lies because it rightly saw them as a form of works righteousness where people said, if I do this, God will like me there and therefore I'll have more righteousness. That's called righteousness by works instead of righteousness by gifts. That God has gifted us righteousness, we don't earn it. You see, the reformers emphasized that we are saved by grace for good works, we are not saved by our works as we willingly embrace a spiritual life instead of a secular life. So let's go back to our biblical explanation. The Bible doesn't say that some are priests. The Bible says that all believers are priests. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody is a pastor because a pastor is a vocational calling as a job, whereas a priest is part of your identity of who you are in Christ. But this is what it does mean. And remember this, if you forget everything else. It means you do not need to be a pastor in order to be a priest. All right? 
According to the Bible, scallopers, artists, carpenters, lawyers, uh, motel owners, waitresses, coast guard, husbands, wives, moms, kids, everything, all are priests to serve our God. And how do we serve our God? Through the everyday, ordinary stuff of life, from changing diapers to writing books. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is why you don't call me Father Bill, because it says call no man father, and you don't call me priest Bill, you call me pastor, or even just Bill, to be quite honest. Follow me, all right? I know it's a lot of data, guys. What do pastors do? What a real, and I'm talking about like pastors in the church. What do pastors do? Shepherds. They raise and they care for and they protect sheep. What do priests do? Priests offer sacrifices to God. What do they tend to sacrifice? Sheep. Now, so I am a priest, but my vocation is to be a shepherd, which means that I raise sheep well so they can be healthy priests and good what? Sacrifices. Are you following me? Yes or no? Okay. What was the primary job of the priest? Sacrifice. What is the primary job of the shepherd? To care for and raise sheep. What do we sacrifice? Sheep. You say, Bill, you are losing me. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In light of the gospel, in light of the fact that you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, in light of the fact that you are now a kingdom and a priest, sacrifice the sheep. Sacrifice yourself as a living sacrifice. But what does Paul say? Make sure it's healthy. Make sure it's a healthy sacrifice. It's one that is seeking to hear and obey King Jesus. And so we could say, well, what does that practically look like? Paul continues, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, look for it, each according to the message of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. In other words, we each have a unique vocational footprint. We are one body in Christ, individually members of another. So what does this practically look like to be, uh, I'm, a, I'm a priest, and I'm a sacrifice, and I'm supposed to sacrifice myself, which is weird, but it's a living sacrifice. And so what does it look like for me practically? This is what it looks like, that every person has been assigned a different calling, a different vocational footprint. You have different families, different talents, different gifts, different culture, and we're one body, the church, but we're extremely diverse, that you don't become more spiritual by becoming a missionary or a pastor or an elder as if it's a ladder to climb. That's just what God has assigned to certain people and not to all. To others, he has assigned many other things. Do you want to find purpose and meaning? 
Do you want to feel spiritually fulfilled? You don't have to be a pastor in order to be a priest. You don't have to be a missionary in order to be a priest. You have to abandon, you don't have to abandon the secular to pursue the sacred because the distinction doesn't exist. Instead, you are called to live for something remarkable right where you are, right where you're created with all of your uniqueness. And that thing is this, priesthood. So stop demeaning your daily lives as somehow less because they're not spiritual. Instead, focus on being faithful within your vocational footprint to hear and obey and share King Jesus, to be a godly husband, a man who washes his wife with the word of God, like it says in Ephesians 5, and in prayer, not a husband who ignores his wife while playing Xbox. One honors Christ, one honors your flesh. To be a godly dad who leads his family well and is spiritually present and is physically present even if it means making less money because he can't work as many hours. To be a godly son or daughter who honors their, their mother and their father. To be a godly worker who works hard without complaint, without a sour attitude, without thievery, doing their best as they labor for God. To care for your community, the church, as well as your neighborhood, the state. To use your gifts and talents and abilities to love the people around you well as you ultimately abide with Jesus and the word and prayer and you grow in your faith and you live as a sacrifice to God. His aroma, your aroma is pleasing to him and he will use you to glorify himself. Exactly where you are. Amen is right. Thank you, Scotty. I'm glad you were assigned by the Holy Spirit to do that. Look, some are called to be shepherds, some are called to be elders, some are called to be deacons, others are called to be teachers, sanitation workers, plumbers, bankers. Some are assigned to have a lot of wealth, some are assigned to have little wealth. Some are assigned to have a huge church, some are assigned to have a small church. But if you are in Christ, you are a king and you are a priest, and you don't need to be a missionary or a pastor in order to be a priest. All of life is sacred. So we work at it well with the right posture of our heart. And we guard our own unique vocational footprint without constantly being jealous that we don't sing like that person or pray like that person or witness like that person or write like that person or understand like that person or whatever it might be. And we don't say, you need to speak like me, teach like me, evangelize like me, pray like me. You need to give like me. You need to know. We have a unique vocational footprint that needs to come into subjection and submission and surrender to King Jesus. And so the challenge for each of us is to let Jesus into every corner of that footprint and not to create secular sacred divides within our own lives so that we can be a faithful people. Um, we made up a sheet. You can grab it on your way out. It, it might be good. It might not be helpful at all. But it's basically some questions to think about as you think about how has God made you? Where has God placed you? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? What kind of impact would you like to have on your family, on the world around you? And it helps you to start wrestling through some of these things. And if you want to go deeper, I encourage you, you can read Oz Guinness's book, The Call, as something to wrestle through. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we wrestle through this idea of a vocational footprint, I know that was a lot. I know it was a lot. And so, Father, I just pray that you would be faithful to help people remember what they need to remember 
and um, and to have the Holy Spirit just speak the one or two things which are going to drive that that issue that you're prompting by your Spirit into their heart. Your Word says that you will remind us of all truth, and so I pray that you would remind us of truth because we're going to forget in an hour um, what you we heard you say. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts so that we could be faithful where we live, work, learn, and play. In your name, amen.